0: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
1: Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to your claim lawyers. A no-win, no-fee, personal injury Injury Claims Law Firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au What a champion! Becomes a legend!
0: McCarty has won a- it! goes
1: in first! What a legend! What a champion! Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: Always a delight to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life, the Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of an athlete who has so many important things on her resume, including perhaps the most important of them all when it comes to sport, an Olympic champion. But there are so many other facets that I want to talk to my guest about this morning. Nova Paris is with us. Nova, hello. Hello. Olympic (laughs) champion. It's still a pretty special title, isn't it?
1: I yeah, it is, but it's I don't know whether it's when you get oldy, Alzheimer's sort of kicks in a bit. But I don't. It's it's hard. You don't sort of really think too far back. You know, like having obviously children of my own and a grandson. You know, always forward thinking, always going forward. So it's not much time I actually get to reflect back, except um, those every four years that the um, Olympic Games come around. Where's the medal? In the National Museum. In Canberra, Mm. so um, it's on permanent display there, and uh, yeah, it's pretty special. Every now and then, you know, someone sends a picture of them with the medal; it pops up on my Facebook, and yeah, they get over a million, you know, I guess um, visitors through the museum. So, um, it's it's worth its weight in gold being there, so to speak.
0: You parted with your collection, Mm -hmm. all your Olympic collection. Was that a difficult thing for you? Because some athletes find that really difficult and others say, well, it doesn't affect what's happened anyway, even if I don't physically have the medal.
1: You know what? The decision came after the Canberra fires and it was within the 12 month of the Canberra fires where over 300 homes, um, you know, were were burnt to ashes and um, Robert D Costella, um, I think, lost a lot of his stuff as well in the fires. So the The Museum had made contact with me, and I, at that time I was thinking, "Okay, you know I could depart with partially or do I loan it to them um, but you know in in sports it 's not like you accumulate um, superannuation you know you I represented this country for twelve odd years and you know, you, you you accumulate a lot of track seats, a lot of memorabilia. And I sort of thought, well, my Olympic gold medal at that time was just in a sock in the top drawer and only ever came out at barbecues when people asked me, where's the gold medal? And so, you know, I thought putting it there on display and yep, got some money and, you know, that went into putting, you know, buying a house and putting a roof over my children. So I sort of thought that was a great investment. And, um, you know, the museum contacted me only last week to say that they're opening another part to the museum and a lot of my other memorabilia is going to be on display. So, you know, it's it's fantastic and, and I don't have any regrets. I'm not a person that holds on to a lot of materialistic possessions. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was an okay decision and, and I'm comfortable with that.
0: You're in a unique position to be able to answer this question question because you have the political input as well as the sporting input. Do you think that we do it the right way in this country? There's been a lot of talk about the way that Great Britain does it and with the lottery there and the funds mm. that go in. Are we doing it the right way?
1: We could do so much better. You know, it's to get to the to the most elite place On the sporting, um, I guess, stage, it is hard. There are so much sacrifices that go along the way. Um, Injuries are a big factor. You know, the mental motivation, the why factor always just pops in. And so to have more support around you, that financial side of things, to be able to access physios, to be able to access sports psychologists, because, you know, with with sporting bodies nowadays, it's, you have to be the most cream of the crop to actually get there. Even, you know, I know I speak in the athletics fraternity, part of a selection criteria, you know, the selectors determine, will we select you if you're going to get a medal or if you're going to make the top eight? And that to me, it shouldn't sort of be the way. If you, if you reach the times and qualification, then you get selected, and anything could happen. You know, when you, when you, when you enter the um, the stadium. But we should do it better. And I think Great Britain, what they found at the '96 Olympics, when um, they only won one Olympic gold medal, they invested enormously financially into the athletes. And, you know, the rest is history. And it goes to show if you put the financial resources to support athletes to get to the top, you're going to get good results.
0: I think you make a really good point about um, only selecting people who might make a final or win Hmm. a medal. We often hear, and maybe I've been guilty as a commentator of saying this over the years, oh, well, they only got two the heat stage or they only got to the semi-final stage, but if they run a PB, you know, that's that's a great achievement in itself and people don't see that necessarily.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and I can attest to that. You know, I made the decision after the 96 Olympics um, to switch sports, um, to go chase my first childhood dream. Um, and a lot of people in the hockey fraternity, including Rick Charlesworth, was like, I'll oh, get this bloody rubbish thought bubble out of your head. We'll see you back in Perth at the Australian Institute of Sport. And I was determined I, I wanted to run for Australia. And, you know, it wasn't a complete transition. I, um, In 1994, I was training in the off-season to hockey. I was training for athletics. I ran at a national championships and made the top six in Australia for the 100 and 200. So that... It wasn't just a thought bubble. I knew that if I won Olympic gold medal, I was going to go chase that second childhood dream and to run an Olympic Games. And, you know, making the world champs team in 97, winning Commonwealth gold, um, you know, it was actually after I won Commonwealth gold in 98 that I thought I actually hated the individual limelight and because there was so much public criticism around me winning the 200 metres, you know, um, that I actually went back and met with Rick and wanted to go back and play hockey. And then I thought to myself, I'm letting other people's thoughts get the better of me. You know, what's true in my heart is I wanted to run an Olympic Games. And so then I went back to, to athletics and at that time, you know, if I look back at history, I could have had two Olympic gold medals around my neck, you know, with the um, hockey roos winning gold at Sydney. But I didn't win an Olympic gold medal at the um, 2000 Olympics. I did run an Olympic final with our 4x4 team. I did break an Australian record as part of that four by 14. That was a 23-year-old record with myself and Tamsin Lewis, Jana Pittman and Susan Andrews. We broke that record first and then broke it again in the Olympic final. And, you know, to run five times in front of 110,000 people, I ran massive personal bests, didn't win a medal, but I can say that you Know, I'm a back to back Olympian making two Olympic finals, and um,
0: well, nobody's ever done that in different sports, have they?
1: No, according to Bruce McIlvaney, <laughs>
0: oh, <well>, he'd know, <laughs> he, he, he would know, know, and
1: yeah, so I mean, that's it, is something you know, um, pretty special. And you know, I often say to my kids, you know, if you say you can, say you can't, either way, you're right, you know, and and you know, they're. They're, they're talented. So many kids are talented and they don't realise how close they are to to actually making it um, before they actually give up because they think it's too hard.
0: I'd planned on talking about mm. your athletics career a little bit later on, but seeing mm. we're on the subject now, you talked about the criticism that happened when you won that gold medal in KL in mm. '98. What was the nature of the criticism?
1: Uh, I guess, you know, um, Melinda Gainesville, I suppose, she, she was the golden favourite going into to that race. Um, me going into the Commonwealth Games, I actually only was selected to run the relay. Um, and there was a whole heap of sort of thing going around because I did go to the court of arbitration and challenge my omission from not making the 100 metres. Um, and in the end, I ended up running the 100 because Melinda Gainsford withdrew. Um, so I made the Olympic final. I finished sixth overall, which is not a bad effort, you know, to, to in a Commonwealth Games um uh, final and then it was on the eve or two days before the 200 metres so I just you know made the Commonwealth final then Cathy F- Freeman withdrew from the 200 she had an injured toe and couldn't run and so I the selectors said do you want to run I'm like hell yeah and I knew that I was in really good shape to run the 200 metres and so I guess going in there I ran the heats ran the semis found myself in the Commonwealth Games final and just went for it. and I guess um um I guess Melinda breaking down afterwards, there was criticism that I didn't um show empathy towards her which which I did. I went to her and you know, like we all did, and then um I'm on my way doing a victory lap, and there was you know talk which didn't come from me that you know the running the rounds of the pressure all that sort of thing, and like media, they grabbed headlines and I went with it and and that was the criticism you know, at the end of the day, I am an Australian. I was there representing Australia and I became a Commonwealth champion. And what should have been a beautiful moment in sport as an underdog that got up and won um, should have been celebrated. And and that was the reason why I thought, shit, I don't like this feeling. You know, I, I compete in sport because that was my childhood dream. And so that's why I wanted to go back to hockey to be back in that team environment. And then I thought you know i I shouldn't be doing that. I should be doing things for what my heart desired, and that was to run and so that that was that was a horrible feeling um you know, Juliet Campbell, who came second in that race, I beat her, and you know she she was a renowned international brilliant two mm. hundred meter runner and I remember in the press conference post that race, one of the Australian journalists said to Juliet. So, Juliet, are you happy with silver? And she's gone, hell no. That's a stupid question to ask a bloody Jamaican. Are you happy with silver? She goes, no, I came here to win. And what Juliet said was, you know, I, I can't take anything away from Nova. She ran a brilliant race. And I beat her by 0.02 of a second. And the fact that, um, you know, I'd beaten Lauren Hewitt, I'd beaten Gainsford. I won that race. And um, yeah, that's just unfortunately criticism that I um, received. You know, going into the Commonwealth, I beaten Melinda in Darwin over the hundred, and and it's sports. It's not life or death. You know, it's it's how you line up on the day and how you pull everything together on the day. And yeah, Um,
0: what's your relationship like with Mel now?
1: Oh, we see each other at um, because her daughter. she runs. Yeah, she's a, she's a good runner. She is. She's a beautiful little runner. It's yeah. Actually, um, just watching um, her daughter on the starting blocks and the, her whole sort of how she does the little jitters, how she is exactly like, you know, her mum, and they say the apple doesn't fall f- far. And so, yeah, I you know, my two younger ones run at national championships as well, so we, we cross paths and, you know, give each other the respect that we've we've always deserved and, yeah, so... Unfortunately, some things do happen in sport, but it's good that you know we're able to to move beyond that. And the fact that we ran an Olympic final together and um, share that Olympic four hundred, oh, sorry, Australian four hundred meter record, and I can't see that being broken in in a long, long time.
0: Speaking of Olympians, mm. the name Peter Norman is synonymous with Olympics in this country for what he did in 1968. Now, there's an event coming up next Wednesday in just a few days' time that um, carries Peter Norman's name at the Victorian Sport Awards. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I, um, last year I was contracted to, to Vic Sport for eight months and during that time um, I got a blank sheet of paper and it was basically we need to address racial discrimination here in Victoria. It's one of the biggest deterrent while Aboriginal Victorians don't play sport In fact, 70% of Aboriginal Victorians don't play sport, um, hence racism being a major factor. So I guess from a minority group where we're always calling out, saying, you know, let's stop racism, racism stops with us, um, I wanted to flip it from the majority side of things and the legacy of Peter Norman was coming up that 50 year anniversary. And I'd reached out to Matt Norman, Peter Norman's nephew, who um, is an international movie producer and producer of movie salute, um, which came out in 2009 or 2010. And I'd reached out to him and I said, look, you know, this um, Peter Norman's anniversary is coming up. Um, I'm thinking of Producing, or can you help me produce a a clip about addressing racial discrimination in sport? And Matt got pretty excited because I guess for many many years um, Peter Norman was sort of shut down by government, if you so to speak, and it's 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 factual, you know he he. Um, you know, didn't get the apology from the federal government until 2012, six years after he had passed away. And so when I reached out to Matt, he was, you know, it was having a brain tumour removed. There was a whole heap of things. And he said, ring me in a month when I've had all my operations done. And a month to the day, I contacted him back. I said, come on, let's go. Let's let's do something good for Peter. And so um, that's what we did. We we produced co-produced a, a five-minute clip, which was called I'll Stand With You. And how that came about is also my role at VicSport was to also help establish VicSport's Reconciliation Action Plan, which now they become the second peak sporting body in Australia to actually have one behind South Australia. They they got in before us. And so it was all part of that, VicSport's actions to, to do that. So we produced this beautiful five-minute clip calling on Australians to be like Peter Norman, stand for human equality. And, you know, the fact that also what sort of prompted me to reach out to Matt was that was at the time when the Australian Olympic Committee were giving Peter Norman the AM award. And I sort of thought, gosh, we're doing this in 2018. You know, he, Peter passed away in 2006. And on October the 9th, 2008, Um, Six, when Tommy Smith and Johnny Carlos came out to Australia, they carried his coffin. You know, they recommended to the USA track and field, let's proclaim this day, Peter Norman Day. And within 24, 48 hours, the USA track and field said, yes, we, we owe this to this white man who stood for human equality when, you know, Johnny Carlos and Tommy Smith they pretty much were jeopardised their own athletics career. Um, they were told not to protest, but they thought, well, we're going to do this because that's the right thing to do. And Peter Norman stood on the right side of history at that time and 50 years on, you know, the sad fact is we still don't have a statue that's erected in his honour um, and to the government's credit last year, they said, yep, here's $100,000, we're going to give that. And we all know you're not going to get much of a statue with $100,000. And, you know, we've got so many statues here in this place that honour wonderful human beings. But the, that image of those three men standing on this, that dais and Peter Norman is actually in the African-American our museum in Washington. And that statue came about, I think, in 2016. So again, the Americans beat us to proclaiming Peter Norman Day in 2006. And we only did it last year to proclaim Peter Norman Day here in Australia. But I sort of think, why do we want to do that on October 9th when the Americans did it? You know, that's the day that Peter stood on the dais. No, so that was the day that Peter passed away we should be honoring peter norman the day he stood on that dais on october 16 and stood for human equality mm. and i think that's all i wanted to do with matt norman was to do something beautiful peter because otherwise what's the point of his legacy you know and i think that message was just getting out there you know i'll stand with you i'll stand for human equality and and that's how the, the award came about and to Vic, sports credit. And, you know, Lisa Hasker's the new CEO. She's been fantastic in driving change there. And, you know, um, yeah, so we thought that we could do an award in the honour. And there's so many beautiful Victorians that have done so much groundwork in addressing not only just racial discrimination, but discrimination on all forms. Ooh.
0: I can't mention all of the nominees because we simply wouldn't have the time to go through their achievements. But I, I know that you know Karen Pierce very well.
1: Yeah, Karen Pierce has done extraordinary work in um, with Basketball Victoria. Um, you know, she's. I mean, she contacted me a couple of years ago and was like, "You know, where's our next Paddy Mills? Why isn't there more Aboriginal Victorians playing? You know, in the NBL? What's the pathway?" And I think that's what you need to find out is how did Paddy mills get to where he did how did i get to where i did you know how did all these other great athletes how have they been able to excel when we've come from the same starting line and um you know the work that um karen has done in addressing racial discrimination in basketball victoria um you know she she pulled together the um the national aboriginal um under 14 Basketball championships, which they're going to have next year, which will run coincide with the Australian under 16. So it's capturing a pathway, getting kids in a safe, culturally safe environment. They're playing with other Aboriginal kids. You can bring talent ID people in to actually help get them in that pathway. Because, you know, there's there's a dime a dozen. There's so much talent out there, but it's actually being able to ad- identify the kids and help them on that pathway because a lot of kids do come from extremely challenging backgrounds and, and if you can't help support them then you're never going to get the next Paddy Mills that's going to come out along the way.
0: Speaking of that pathway, that's mm-hmm. something I want to explore with you on the other side of the break, your <laughs> pathway, the, the early steps and the steps towards becoming an Olympic champion in hockey and also a great athlete in track and field. Mm-hmm. We'll explore that when we come back on the other side of the break. Nova Paris is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Celebrating Lives, and we'll be back with more with Nova after the break.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: And it is indeed a pleasure to have Nova Perris as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life, for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Nova, you talked about the pathway. Let's go back to where it all began for you.
1: So hockey, my mum and aunties and uncles all played hockey. So from the time I could walk, I had a hockey stick in my hand. Um, obviously, growing up in Darwin, um, it was you know almost thirty percent of the entire population is Aboriginal people up there, and it's a very multicultural place. So, you know, in a way, I was I was fortunate that discrimination wasn't a big factor in, in me being able to to get out there and play sports. The beautiful thing was Darwin is everything's five to ten minutes away. So And you can play multiple sports, which is what I did. So that's how I sort of got into hockey was through my mum and my family. Um, My Italian godmother, who lived next door to us, she said to my mum, Nova's pretty fast. I want to take her to athletics. So my first time I ever did athletics was when I was five or six years old. So Cesarina Gonzatti took me to, to my athletics meet and came back with a full of blue ribbons and sticker books and everything. So that's sort of how... My athletics and hockey started, and obviously every year I broke records, won medals, and it was all because of that Italian godmother getting me into that. Um,
0: You did all sorts of other sports, though, too, didn't you? You you had your finger in just about every pie imaginable.
1: Well, I played football, Aussie rules football. I played till I was about 14, when girls couldn't play with... Um, There was no more pathway. There was no youth football like there is now. So I stopped playing Aussie Rules footy when I was 14 years old. Um, I played touch football, um, wasn't so good at swimming. Um, Basketball, wasn't so good at that. But I just, yeah, hockey, athletics, touch football and football. Mm. They were the things that I did as a kid and also played indoor cricket. That's right. I went away for a state team that one year as well so
0: how did you find the time to do all this stuff
1: i just did like you know it's not like we have computers and buddy mobile phones yeah. and games that everyone just rode bikes to their place and the rule of our household was you know street lights got to be home before streetlights come on and um yeah so it, it was just a very sporty environment up in the up in the northern territory and and being outside was something that we're always encouraged to do you know i just we lived across the road from it was all sort of scrublands there now and now it's you know sort of a big sporting facility but um yeah and my my mom and my stepfather at the time just as much as i was this i i guess amazingly talented kid um education was also very very important and um, that took precedent over everything else. We had to, me and my sister, had to just always maintain good grades at school. Um, and if we didn't, you know, what was pulled from us, the rug, was the sports. Um, um. So I feared that and... uh playing sports and education, you know, kept me in good stead for life.
0: Now, there's a story that goes around about some of the trophies that you won early in your career. Did mm. they did they get taken away from you? What, what was the story about uh,
1: that? So, so my stepdad was a copper, and when I was in year start of year 11, came out of year 10, got a certificate of excellence, straight-A student, student, and then going into year 11, um, I got mixed up in the wrong crowd, being the stepdaughter of a copper in the NT. Um, yeah, he soon sort of found out that I, you know, was playing up at school and, uh, you anyway, know, got home from school and um, he was there, wasn't happy. So, um, yeah, got a hiding ran away from home all of two and a half kilometres around to my grandparents' house, and people would know that you never interrupt old people while they're watching the news. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I interrupted my grandparents, and anyway, I was crying. They're like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, i got a hiding. And, um, and my grandfather said, why would you get hiding from? And I said, oh, I was wag school a couple of days, and no sympathy. He was like, good job, would have done it myself. And uh, anyway... So my stepdad came back, um, came round home to my grandparents' place, and he um, used to drive a private detective's car, and he chucked the blue light on top. So he, I felt like a real criminal for you know misbehaving at school, and um, then he came in and he had all my trophies in um, in a pillowcase, couple of pillowcases, and he just threw them on the do- on the floor and smashed quite a few of them, and and. That was a turning point. I was like, you know, pull your friggin' head in. You know, school's everything. And I'd never seen my grandfather ever have a tear in his eyes. And, you know, my grandfather grew up in the Kimberleys and, you know, was a member of the Stolen Generation. It was taken from when he was six. And so I grew up on Beagle Bay and... um Learned how to ride horses, so he became um worked in the cattle mustering cattle in the in the Kimberleys harsh country and you know he never really spoke about much of his childhood and it took of no one ever back answered your grandfather he was he was the you know the the king of our family, so to speak, and he sat there with super glue, putting all my trophies back and It was at that time I thought to myself, you know my grandparents and my mum growing up on missions, they never had the opportunity to go to school or get a good education and it was at that time where I was thought, you know, I was a bit of a little a bit of a mongrel kid at that time and like all kids, you know, you you learn by your mistakes and it was something that you think you're... Um, You know, you're doing the wrong thing by your, you're disrespecting your grandparents and all the hard work that they had done. So that was a turning point in my life. I left the school that I was at, got sent to St. John's College, um, which is a school with, you know, Michael Long, Nathan Buckley went to, you know, Andrew McAdam. there's this school in Darwin run by the old Catholics at that time. And, you know, I sort of, it turned my life around and um, got banned from sports for four months couldn't go away on missed out on a couple of state trips. So yes, that was the turning point in my life. And, you know, um, tough love. I was tough love. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for those years. You know, no one's ever a perfect child. Us as human beings, we're, we're faulty creatures. We make mistakes and we do stupid things. And I was no exemption from that. And, uh, yeah, the tough love that I had from my stepfather and my grandfather, um, yeah, you know, I am now the eldest of, God, 29 grandchildren. Nana and grandad had 10 kids together. And yeah, so a very big family, but it was, um, it was a turning point in my life. You know, it was the year that I also went on and ended up making the Australian under 16 schoolgirls. So Maybe it was the, the tough love and kick up the backside I needed in life at that time.
0: Yeah, every crowd, uh, cloud has a silver <laughs> lining. We don't know it at the time, and you probably felt a bit rebellious with what happened at the instant, but mm. you look back on it now and think, well, I could have gone one or two ways at that
1: time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I often say that to my kids now if they're whinging and carrying on, I'm like, shut your mouth. You know, you've got bloody nothing on your grandparents. <laughs> and, you know what, my grandmother endured, especially talking about, you know, NADOC week last year, um the theme was because of her we can and it really made me reflect on my mum the time that she spent on the mission of the 8 years on the Tiwis, and then my grandmother for 12 years that she spent in the East Kimberley's there so i think that sometimes when you look at the way society is now sometimes we really need to think back and look at the the i guess the historical injustices that you know have Our mob have sort of got through, I suppose, and you know the resilience and strength that they had is what we sort of need today to sort of you know keep us moving forward.
0: So you reach this fork in the road and you go the right path, and after getting a kick up the backside, (laughs) there's still this tug of war going on, I guess, between hockey and athletics because you're good at both. Mm -hmm. Why did hockey originally win out?
1: It won because in 1988, um, I was in the Australian under-18s at that time um, as a 17-year-old. And the Australian women's hockey team came up to Darwin and that was um, climatisation camp before going to the Seoul Olympics. So it was at that time that I actually got to play in a few scratch matches with the Australian hockey team that was going to Seoul. So here I was, a 17-year-old girl from the Northern Territory, um, in the Australian under-18s, got to rub shoulders with my heroes and play against them. They've gone off and won the Olympic gold medal and there was a few of the girls, um, Elspeth Clements at the time and Jackie Pereira, there was like, if you come to Perth, come play for the Mighty Pirates. And so they sort of planted that seed and things were great with the sport of hockey. There was no senior athletics whatsoever in the Northern Territory. So beyond being a 15-year-old, top sprinter in the NT, there was no senior athletics. So it was a relatively easy sort of decision to make. Um, and then in 1992, I think it was, at the end, that was the big decision that I made to go to Perth, rang Elspeth up and said, you know, she had. I knew that she had a young daughter, same age as Jessica, at the time she was two years old. And she said, yep, yeah, come down. And I found myself playing club hockey for the Mighty Pirates who had eight girls that played for Australia in that one club team. Mm. So um, for me to make that big move from Darwin to go to Perth, you know, I didn't have a scholarship at that time. It was me going down there, trying to crack it and, you know, rocking up the Australian Institute of Sports, asking them, can I train? Can you give me trial? And they gave me a trial for four or five weeks and, um, I coped with it and then the rest is history.
0: Yeah, and that history involves 1996 in Atlanta. For those of us who were there, mm. it was a difficult game in lots of ways because transportation was an issue and, and there were other things that went along with it. But uh, is it just nothing but sweet memories for you?
1: Uh, it It's funny because the hockey Hockeyroo girls, irrespective of whatever circumstance, we could always find some sort of humour in it all and you know we might have gone into the accommodation wind you know that's what what you do you have all these expectations but then when you get there it's not what you expect i suppose and and um with the heat you know luckily me coming from darwin but we did acclimatization in, in darwin before we went to the olympics the food and i think having someone like rick charlesworth in your corner you know the guy is just a f- Unbelievable human being. You know, five Olympics, I think one of them they didn't go because it was boycott. But during that time, he was a, you know, 10 years in the Australian Parliament. He was a doctor, open Sheffield cricket for Western Australia, you know, slightly an overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things Rick really planted with us was to expect the unexpected always. And, you know, you can't always be so reactive to the, an environment that you can't change. It's just how you mentally deal with it. And that's how we were prepared. Whatever the accommodation was, that it is, it was what it was. It is what it is. And the heat, everything, we just had to, um, you know, we got there. We weren't allowed to go to the opening ceremony. We are there to win an Olympic medal. So there was a whole heap of things, the sacrifices that you make. You go to the Olympics. You go there to be your best. And we were at our best and we're undefeated, you know, winning the Olympic gold medal. So um, I I honestly believe having Rick Charlesworth, you know, people don't actually realise how much of an amazing human being that man is.
0: Yeah, he's been a guest on this program, one of the more fascinating (laughs) chats I think I've had over the journey, talking to Rick. You mentioned you couldn't go to the opening ceremony. I suppose you sat there and you watched it and you saw that moment with Ali lighting the flame yep. and probably thought, gee, I, I would have loved to have been there just to see that.
1: Uh, most definitely. You know, And we did, we watched it from the common room and half of us were sort of thinking, oh, we could have been there, we could have sat in the ground. And, yeah, but I, I guess in the overall scheme of things, like to walk away with that Olympic gold medal was just, was you know, that's, that's every little girl's, I guess, every sports person's fairy tale. Mm. And, you know, I remember when we did get to the Olympics, we had to do this um, like a sports psych, psych session where we had to write down the front page of the news for our Olympic journey. And we'd all written things like um, the hockey ruse, you know, brings home gold. For Australia and things like that, so we were all pumped up talking about it, and then Rick Charles was like, "Radio, screw it up, chuck in the in the bin." And we're like, "What? Why? Why can't we put it up?" He said, "Well, you can't get to that if you don't win every single game. Mm. So whilst you've got your, you know, your eyes on the end game, you've got to go through the process. And I think that's how we sort of conditioned us um, was to to go through the process. You know, seventy minutes of hockey, but being able to to break that down." Um, and, you know, the, the amount of work that we would spend um, on, you know, if, if they were to score a goal, how did that goal result? Who was the weakest link along the way? And so that's, that's you know, we, every individual was the weakest link. And, yeah.
0: Didn't you famously once say something like um, you win the gold medals with the preparation and everything that goes along with it and then you actually just turn up on the day and collect them?
1: my son said that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Jack Jack he's he's 15. He's won through oh, four national titles. And when he won his first national title in the 400 in 2017, I knew what he was going to run and I just had to keep saying to him, Jack, this is what you're going to run. And he said, "How do you know?" cuz I'm I coach him. I'm down the track. I he you know, he was doing my Olympic program. He still does my Olympic program. So, you know, there's an old saying, if it ain't broke, don't try and fix it. And um, when he won that that title, and I was like, Jack, put it up on your Instagram. Put stories up. And he's such a real modest kid. He, he, he was like, oh, it's all right, Mum. I'll just do this one pick. And I'm like, son, your journey was five months in preparation to run at that time 51 seconds as a 13-year-old. And he said, yeah, I know, but all the time that I was training, Mum, he said, I won my Olympic gold medal. I'm not my Olympic gold medal. I won my gold medal. I just picked it up today.
0: Mm. Great expression. You know, yeah,
1: really and, is. and he, um, and that's sort of just how he sort of feels. He he loves the adrenaline of, of training and then going into competitions. And um, he's actually with the St Kilda um, Next Generation Academy in their elite academy, Um so there, there'll be time in Jack's life where he might he possibly have to to choose if you know he could be good enough to play AFL. Mm. But um, yeah, the sport of athletics. He he won the two hundred last year at the uh, Australian All Schools by four four and a half five meters. Uh, Ran a you know unbelievable time um, in in the headwind and and also in the conditions in the rain up in Cairns. Um, and unfortunately, two days later, he injured himself. He tore his tendon. So now I sort of said to him, Jack, that's your body just saying to you, you just need a rest, son. You know, you've playing elite sports from the time he was twelve up until now, and boys in particular, it's sport, sport, sports, sports, mm. sports. Um, but yeah, so he's he's um, having a rest. Good oh, recovery. Well.
0: If he's got to make the choice, there's probably <laughs> someone that he could ask about making a choice in sport who's not too far away from him. Yeah. Uh, When we come back on the other side of the break, we'll go from hockey to athletics and the transition that took you to the Commonwealth Games and, of Mm -hmm. course, the Sydney Olympics. Nova Paris is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. More after the break.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Nova Paris is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Nova, um, you've had a few bases over the years. You talked about the journey beginning in the Northern Territory, but you lived in the United States, you lived on the Sunshine Coast, you were down here in Melbourne for a while. So you've seen a bit of the place, you've seen a bit of the world.
1: I have. Actually, I went from Darwin to Perth. I was base there for four or five years, then went from there to Melbourne. After hockey, moved here, and then I lived partially in Melbourne, in America, and then leading up to the Sydney Olympics, I moved to Sydney. But prior to all of that, even before my journey started, I was—you're correct—I was living um, in the Gold Coast, Mm. and then lived in Canberra not long ago. Then went back to Broome a few years ago, and travelled to fifty odd countries with my sport, so seen a fair bit of um, the countryside.
0: So, when the transition mm. is in place, you're going mm-hmm. from hockey to athletics and you spend some time down here, as you said. Kathy Freeman's the biggest name in the sport mm. at that time, and her partner mm-hmm. and her manager, Nick Badeau, was also a big part of the sport. Mm-hmm. Did you butt heads a little bit in that time?
1: Uh, it's not, no, not really. We like Kathy when I first came down here, I trained with Kathy. For, for quite some time, uh, for two years, I think it was. And um, it's a funny sport, athletics, because it's, you know, the administration, managers, it's just, and it's a dog-eat-dog dog world. It's, you know, everyone's, you know, trying to be the best. And um, even though the time that I spent with Cathy, which is unbelievable to actually train with someone of her caliber. I was training with her when she won her um uh ninety seven world title in the four hundred metres. So um yeah, I, I guess it was just a difficult time when um Kathy was going through her, her split, um with Nick. But um yeah, we you know, she's very good friends with my sister. I I see Kathy, we we cross paths quite a lot, but it's it's like uh, also like with my hockey room teammates, you know, you you achieve the ultimate with fifteen other girls, and there's a whole coaching fraternity that's wrapped around you. But then when you come together, it's like where have those years lapsed? It was like you you you, you take up um, for all where all those times are sort of left. But yeah, it's 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 an odd place, track and field. It's Whereas you know with the hockey girls you can catch up and like I said you know you can twenty years where have they gone but they're your best mates for life um, and especially in that team environment because you know like I said you know you're as you're as strong as your weakest link in the team sport and you need everyone to pull together and gel together on that any given day but yeah in the sport of track and field it's 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 an odd one you know even like you. you Talk about Johnny Carlos and and Tommy Smith, how their friendship, I don't know, that you just, it's just a perception. It's not the perception, it's you form a perception of the things that you you hear. Um, Yeah, but you know, like going back to the Sydney Olympics, you know, the two things that were my biggest memories was Jai Tarima in that long jump, Mm. winning the silver medal was just unbelievable. And, you know, Cathy Freeman, she, she had the weight of a nation that day um, and, you know, before she ran, I braided her hair, we sat at the track and you just, they're, they're the small little things that we see behind the scenes and um, that the public never see, you know, with the carrying the weight of the nation. I think that, you know, you, you see a lot of young athletes nowadays that weren't even born back in that. But who are your heroes or Cathy Freeman or whoever it may be? And, yeah, so, you know, her her legacy would just live on forever and a day.
0: I reckon that great Mm. shot of her when she won and she collapsed Mm. to the track, that was the shot of someone who had exactly what you're talking about, the weight of the nation, Mm. and just at that moment it was lifted off her shoulders.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you couldn't have captured it any better, the fact that she wore, you know, the space suit yeah. <laughs> when, when she ran and just the relief of her pulling the hood off, unzipping it, sitting in. And then, you know, the the, the girls who she raced against came over to her to congratulate. It's, it wasn't a euphoric um fist pump in the air after she ran. It was just what a relief, everything. And yeah, it 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 was beautiful, and to see her celebrate after and get on that die was, was just was unbelievable.
0: What about for you? You've won the gold medal in Atlanta. You represent mm. your nation in a final in Sydney, doing something was something that nobody's ever done before. Mm. What about the progression after Sydney? Was it a bit of a come down because of the high, the euphoria that was the Sydney Olympics in front of your home crowd?
1: Um, yes massively um because there was so much build up to it and then the following year i ran at the um at the world champs in edmonton and when i ran at the time i was i think 10 11 weeks pregnant for my daughter destiny so that pretty much will set me into an early retirement, you know, a lot of people had sort of said, well, you could have gone on for another Commonwealth Games, which was only a couple of years around the, the track. But, um, you know, I up until the 2001, I'd been wearing the green and gold for like 12-odd years. If you, but if you count into, you know, the time I'd made my sh- Australian schoolgirls, it was 13 years, um, and I was 31 at the time. And so for me, it was, okay, what next, life after sport, um, had destiny and Jack they were twenty months apart, and that sort of put me into i guess working for government at the time and getting out and doing the community work that I have done um, so yeah there 's you know a lot of people don 't make that transition well in um, from sports and then to what next, but I think because I had um, you know the time that I did win my Olympic gold medal, I was um, a mother as well and second mother to ever win a gold medal behind Shirley Strickland, some 50 years apart. But so for me, that family side of things, going back and doing stuff within the Aboriginal communities in the, the youth space was something that was an easy transition for me. So maybe I was probably one of the fortunate ones that was able just to, to have kids and then go back into the working world.
0: Mm. Well, we've just about come to the end of your story and there's so much we've left out along the way, but unfortunately we're running out of time. We'll take our final break and then we'll come back. And this is a sporting show because the name of the program is This Is Your Sporting Life, but we have to touch on politics just a little bit in our <laughs> final segment. So we'll come back and do that with Nova Paris on the other side of the break. Join us then.
1: Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Our final segment with Nova Paris on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. I don't really want to talk politics on a sporting <laughs> show, but I suppose we've got to. Did it sit well with you? Was politics something that sat on your shoulders or was it thrust upon you?
1: Um, I guess being an elite Aboriginal sporting person with a profile, whether you like it or not, you become political. You know, you're always asked about the political landscape of Aboriginal affairs. And so I remember even after I'd run my second round at the Sydney Olympics of the 400 progress through to the semis, a reporter would shoved a microphone and said, so what's um, life after sport where's that going to take you, politics? I'm like, what the hell are you asking? Am I going to go into politics, you know, whilst I'm running at the bloody Sydney Olympics? <laughs> and at that stage, um, yeah, because I'd been, I guess, you know, when I carried the Olympic flame out of Uluru, there was a political statement there. I didn't wear shoes because it, not only a sign of respect for my ancestors, but it was also a time in my life where I could be a voice and address the the disadvantage that Aboriginal, um, the face of remote communities where there's so much disadvantage there. A bit like, um, you know, the stance that Michael Long has taken and used his voice to to shine a light on the levels of disadvantage amongst Aboriginal people in this country. So whether you liked it or not, that's where my life was sort of going at the time, whether I liked to know it, that's where my life was going. So for me to get a tap on my shoulder and ask, would I serve? And it's not very often a prime minister would tap you on the shoulder and say, will you serve? And that's the way I looked at it. And there had never been an Aboriginal woman in federal parliament. There had never been an Aboriginal person for the Australian Labor Party in parliament. So there were were factors there. And I thought, if I don't do it, who's going to be the first? So that's why I said yes. And at the time it I was there was two weeks where it was no point of return and I got to the stage and I was thinking shit what have I got myself into and you know my from the time the announcement was in January to September it was nine months of campaigning and as a cyclone Tracy category five survivor every day I thought I was in a category six cyclone because it, it it was horrible you know so, you know there's that's what people do, they they want to throw mud at you and hope it sticks, and so I had to bear that. and And I think being a um, an elite sports person helped me get through that. So when I went through, um, you envisage something in politics, but that's not how it sort of ends. You sort of feel like you you at times you have to toe the party line, the things that you believe, the things that your constituents want. That's not what happens in Parliament. And I struggled um, with the family side of things. It was hard for me as a a mother. You know, I had my son down here at boarding school who was a 12-year-old, you know, young Aboriginal boy. I had a daughter who was a boarding school in Sydney. I had my husband in Darwin. My grandson was living with us. And so I just felt my... The umbilical cord for all my family was spread all over the countryside, not to mention you know the racial discrimination and the vile attacks that I had every week you know and I had to endure that for three weeks uh, three years. a lot of people don 't see that, and then you 're just trying to do the right thing and so I just felt that I was a moving target the whole time that I was in in parliament, and you know in sport. You can control the controllables about how you go out and perform, how you you face your opposition. But in Parliament, you can't do that. You you don't know your enemies. You don't know what's coming your way. And half the time, your enemies are bloody behind you. In sport, they're in front of you. Mm. And that was a hard thing for me. And, you know, a lot of people had criticised me and said, oh, you know, she should have done this. But I actually did one term. And so I didn't quit during a term. I just decided not to go around again. And, um, you know, since then I've just watched how people, when they've left Parliament, and they didn't cop half the shit that I copped when I decided not to recontest. And, yep, it was an extremely safe seat. But, you know, by me deciding not to recontest, you have Malindiri McCarthy, another beautiful, strong, fantastic Aboriginal woman in there serving the people of the Northern Territories, doing a fantastic job. So, you know, life goes on and, you know, I'm down here doing some good stuff around the sports, um, around, you know, um, engaging the wider community. So, and being able to be with my family more. You know, I had to sit 21 weeks of the calendar year away from your family. People don't realise that. Not to mention as a senator, your role is doing a lot of um, committee work. That's another 10, 12 weeks of the year. So for two-thirds of the year, you're away from your family and it's bloody hard as 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 a woman, as a mother, and I was an Aboriginal woman and just copying more shit than most people would. So, um, yeah, that was my short three-year stint in Parliament. Um,
0: now, can, yeah. can I just apply some um, rules of the Senate? because I'm going to ask you two questions and the mm. president of the senate would allow you a certain amount of time and we've only got a certain amount of time yeah. so <laughs> can I get the the political answer on a couple of questions do you reckon that most people are in politics for the right reasons or are they is there a majority who are in it only to serve themselves
1: i f- think a bit of both like i i copped a lot of crap because I wasn't part of a rank and file system. So when you go into politics, you whether you're out of uni, then you're a staffer, and you sort of end up that way. In and I sort of found people that would in the areas sort of almost didn't have a lot of lived life experience, and I I thought that me having such a lived life experience would put me in a really good position because I understood the real lived experience of the landscape of the Australian people. I lived in Housing Commission. I've been at the grassroots in sports. I've risen to the top in sports. My kids were at school. I understand. I understood. I worked in schools where I saw the the stark disadvantages that came from being an Aboriginal person in remote communities. And I understood so much. But then sort of when you get in there with all these good intentions, it's very difficult to actually get your message across, and at times, you know, my God, people with with egos were, were enormous. You know, I sort of felt I didn't have yet. Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with celebrating your own achievements in life, but I've done a received a well, achieved a lot of a hell of a lot of my own achievements, but I don't sing my own praise. I'm just happy to just keep going and going and going, and for me. One of the greatest things I, I feel now is being able to give back and do things for other people. That brings me a lot of satisfaction and happiness that you can do things for others and that's why I, I went in.
0: Supplementary question mm. <laughs> uh, for the former Senator. Um, with regard: This is probably a mix of politics and sport. Do you think that sport in general is going the right way about the way they treat Indigenous athletes. And the other part to that question is, is the AFL leading the way after being one of the bodies that had to be dragged kicking and screaming into this a couple of decades ago?
1: Well, I I think we owe that almost to one individual, mm. a man called Michael Long. And this year um, is the 15-year anniversary that he walked from Melbourne to Canberra. And... What Michael Long did was an act of um, him. He didn't have to do it, but he was a man who inspired millions of people. I guess through his football prowess, he stood when th- against the injustice of the system. When he was racially vilified, he he was outspoken. So he used that side of things to address the big issue. Some things might not have come of it, but we know that the racial vilification, that came out, out of it as well. But what Michael did was more than just sports. It was about him bringing people together. And what he said was, it's come with me and walk with me. And when he just pretty much walked out of the lounge room and said, I'm doing this because he'd just come from a, you know, a funeral and said, this isn't right, The there was no um, Aboriginal affairs importance on the political landscape. ATSIC had just been abolished, our big peat body, and so he got out walking. So for him to walk, you know, to Canberra, the irony of all of this now is you go back to what evolved from it in 2005 was a Dreamtime at the G. So the biggest reconciliation event this country has is Dreamtime at the G. It brings people together. Now opposition, premiers you know, um, prime ministers, they all come here now to be on that stage with Michael Long. And that's what Michael Long did in, in sports. He brings people together. And now, you know, you get some AFL teams that are playing. There's not one Aboriginal person that make takes the field that day. But non-Indigenous players are now respecting the oldest, longest continuing race on the planet. And... That's a beautiful thing, and that's what Michael Long's message was. Where is the love for Aboriginal people? And you know, I often I've been saying this a lot lately. You know, when you look at you know what happened here a few hundred years ago, you know, yes, there's been it's it's been brutal, but we can't change the his we can't change that. We can only move forward, and but to move forward, you need to understand. Where we come from in those past 200 years, you know, if if we deny that, then I deny everything about my mum. Everything I de- I deny everything about my grandparents, and that's what Michael Long felt. But we can't change. But how do we move forward? You need to understand where our starting point is, and so you know, for Michael Long, to do what he did, he brings people together and he has that conversation, um, and I think that's what that's the power of sports. And going back to what the AFL so. It, the AFL 110% took the lead on that, and they embraced it by bringing about the Dreamtime at the G. It's and you know it's just evolved over time, and it's beautiful. They they get it right, you know this the the entertainment before the game, during the game, everyone embraces it. You've got that you've the Anzac Day and the Grand Final. They're probably the three biggest things, and you know it's brilliant that the AFL did get behind Michael. And, you know, everyone can always do better when things happen along the way. But like I said, you know, we're humans are faulty creatures. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it right. But when we get it right, it's a beautiful thing.
0: Question time has just about expired. (laughs) But I've got one last one and uh, I've saved the hardest one till last. Mm. I don't know whether you can answer this. What's more likely for Jack? Jack? Is he going to be standing on the top step of the Olympic dais with a gold medal around his neck in athletics or is he going to be standing on the premiership dais at the MCG one day with a premiership medallion around his neck?
1: Do you know what? I I often thought of that and because me being a two-time Olympian, Jack's father, Daniel, who passed away sadly in 2012, also went to the Olympics. So for him to think I can go to the Olympics, it's not... You know, a a thought bubble. He he can do it, but um, he also knows he's he could potentially play AFL. And you know, my young nephew Brandon Parfit, plays for Geelong, yeah. um, and he's had an exceptional last couple of years. Um, so Jackie sees his big cousin doing exceptional things and doing well in that aspect. So um, I don't know. Could 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 he? Do both. I dunno. That's something that Jack and you know the, the St Kilda um, are supporting Jack in in his athletics. But you can. I know that they wanted to play football. I w- I would love my son to play football. Um, but yeah, it's up to him what he wants to do. Like at the end of the day, he he loves school. And God, he's back at school today. I was counting those last week of school <laughs> days when the kids going back. Uh. But yeah, he's he's a he's a good student. He's a good kid and you know he's like so he's broken a number of Victorian records now and doing some exceptional things but it's it's his dream. I'll just support whatever he wants to do.
0: A very diplomatic answer and yeah. a good way to end. <laughs> Enjoy the night on Wednesday night with the Peter Norman Award. It's a very special night in sport in this state and in this country. Your journey has been an extraordinary one, very unique. Thanks for sharing it with us.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Nova Paris joining us on this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers funeral. Celebrating lives. We'll be back with the same time at the same time next week with another great guest. I hope you can join us then.